1: available at primalblueprint.com past episodes are available for download
0: or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com and now here's your host brad kearns okay i'm back in the malibu studios with mark sisson mark thanks for coming
2: hey you know it's not only my pleasure but it's my duty since i live here
0: and with the Primal Blueprint podcast, we're so skilled at throwing uh, new new wrinkles into the mix with the essay readings and, the, of course, the Q&A and then a guest here and there. But today, we're turning the tables on the podcast king himself. Believe it or not, we have Jimmy Moore as a guest on the Primal Blueprint podcast. Jimmy, are you there? The podcast king. I've never been told that one, but uh, I'll take it. J- <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy,
2: that? you're the world-famous podcast king. <laughs> Uh, and diet blogger and and it appears now that you've interviewed over 900 health experts on your podcast is that true
1: yeah if you uh if you add up all the people i've uh, interviewed over the past eight years and that includes the great mark sisson uh, there as well um yeah it's it's probably closer to a thousand people at this point which uh which is quite an honor because I'm just a dude from south carolina that lost a little weight so
0: Yeah, lost uh, lost a little weight, yeah. Can you tell us your 130 most favorite podcast guests? Sure. I'm just kidding. Number one. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Um,
2: The other thing that that needs to be made mention of here is that uh, Jimmy is a semi-pro frisbee golfer, and uh, that's uh, near and dear to my own heart.
1: Yeah. Um, How's your golf game? Oh, man, we got to play some Ultimate Frisbee because that looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> it is a blast. In fact, I uh, see you playing it on the beach at Malibu and I'm going, man, I got to come out and play sometime, man. That's that's awesome.
2: Yeah, you you, you dig it tremendously.
1: So let's uh, let's move on here
2: and talk about Keto Clarity, your new book with uh, Eric Westman. Mm-hmm. So famously, you went low carb a while back. I'm going to think around 2004
1: 10 years ago. Yep.
2: Yep. You went paleo before it was cool to do that. You did, uh, <laughs> the low carb thing. Uh, right. you, you identified with primal, you lost a ton of weight and then you stalled. Yeah. So is, is this what brought you to the, um, to the, what we would call next level shit, which would
1: be the, the ketosis <laughs> thing? <laughs> the next level shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think for a lot of people that do low carb Mark and they kind of get stuck they're kind of looking for, okay, what's going on? Because reducing your carbohydrate, uh, and you talk about this quite a bit too, kind of is a, a nice starting point for a lot of people. And it gets most of the people where they want to be, at least in the short term. But over the long term, you find you need to make tweaks to some other aspects of the diet And it's not just about low carb anymore. That's where ketogenic and getting real sophisticated with it and testing for ketosis really comes into play to help people really pinpoint and target in on what they need to do to burn fat and to to get all the health benefits, quite frankly, uh, that this way of eating will give you.
2: And the health benefits are pretty substantial as we as we continue to discover in the uh, literature. Um, So. Are you in ketosis right now?
1: I am. I actually tested a little bit uh, earlier, a couple of hours ago before this interview, and it was right around 1.4 on the blood ketone meter. I test in a variety of ways, and we share about this in the book. There's a whole lot of technologies that are actually on the way uh, in terms of measuring for breath ketones. I got an iPhone app that's being developed in Japan right now where you can just blow into it, and it'll show you right on your iPhone screen you know what your current level of ketosis is. So yeah, I try to stay in ketosis pretty much all the time.
2: But if you come out, it's no big deal. You just go right back in.
1: Yeah, it's no big deal. And people worry about that. They're like, oh no, I was only 0.2 on the blood meter. I'm like, you know what? Did you have an indiscretion? Yeah, I had a cupcake. I said, no big deal. Get right back on it again. Do those things that it takes. And when, when you're pretty low carb and you've been in ketosis and you come out of it, it's very easy to get back into it. I almost always, when I come out, get back in within two to three days.
2: Yeah, and that's, I think, I, I first learned that from uh, Finney and Volick, the same kind of thing, that, yep. that, you know, once you're out of ketosis, it's not a big deal. And, it, and I've, I've even heard people getting back in
1: in a day uh, yeah. or two. And Especially again, if you use MCT oil, that really exactly, helps you get back exactly. into it. All right, so is ketosis appropriate for everyone? I don't think so. I think it's definitely a modality for treatment for people that have become frustrated by other means for dealing not just with weight loss. That's kind of the condition that a lot of people turn to with ketogenic diets because they associate it with the Atkins diet. But we're talking about more than just weight loss here. We're talking about all sorts of health issues and especially brain health issues. That Mark, that is the most exciting part. When I was researching this book, I had no idea just how therapeutic ketone bodies were to your brain health and the mood stabilization, the clarity, all pun intended, of mind that you get. Really, it's just fascinating to me. If I never lost another pound, I would be in ketosis simply for the way it makes me feel uh, and my brain health benefits that I get from doing it. All right, so go a little bit deeper into that. What? How does that manifest itself for you? When I'm not in ketosis, I get I get some of that kind of brain fog uh, where it's just kind of, you know, they call it senior moments and uh, you start forgetting things and it's just like the clouds lift. Once I'm in ketosis, and it has to be for me, I've I've found that when I'm over 1.0 millimolar on the blood ketone meter like I am right now, that's when I feel those effects where the clouds lift. I have just a general happy attitude. I mean, I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy anyway, but my wife Christine will tell you when I did low-fat and i wasn't eating fat in my diet i was an angry angry man <laughs> and so those fats and and by extension those ketone bodies are actually fueling your brain quite well even optimally i would say
2: right i've i've sort of made a point of that as well that you know the brain as the main consumer of glucose for most people you know right. it's so dependent on glucose and you forget that you could build this metabolic machinery that utilizes ketones not just efficiently, but perhaps better than glucose. Yeah, uh, And it's, it's a very cool thing. I want to ask you, is there an upper range for you in terms of millimolar uh, yeah. where it's either not worth doing, too difficult to undertake, too many sacrifices?
1: What, what does that look like? <laughs> so you're talking about blood ketone yeah. Re- readings? Yeah. So the highest reading I've ever gotten was 6.7. Whew. And that was just a fluke. I mean, <laughs> that almost sounds blood- dangerous. Well, it sounds dangerous until you realize the really dangerous it, for ketoacidosis, which we can talk about if you want to, uh, is closer to 20 millimolar. Oh, yeah. So I was still less than a third of the what what would be actually considered really, really dangerous. At the same time, though, my blood sugar was like 62 mm. when I had that high. But what Volick and Finney talk about is there's this range between 0.5 and 3.0. So What I've personally seen, though, is I really start feeling the benefits right at 1.0 millimolar. So I have a little bit higher for nutritional ketosis, even though technically you're probably in it closer to that 0.5. But I don't really see any extra benefits going beyond 2.5 or 3. So I usually try to stay within that 1 to 2 range, and I'm quite comfortable there. Right.
2: And again, in terms of your consumption on a daily basis, are you – cutting way back are you like under 50
1: grams under 30 grams of carbs what is that yeah. on a meal to meal basis how does that how does that look So, for me, and in the book, we show people how you find your carbohydrate tolerance level. You have to find where your protein threshold level is, and then you eat fats to satiety, and then you test. That's kind of the – we did an acronym for keto using all of those terms. And so, for me personally, carbohydrates have to stay – I've done this long enough, Mark. I know. I know what my carb tolerance is, and I'm talking total carbs here. uh, About 30 grams for me. So That's, that's 30, in a day? In a day. So 30 grams of carbohydrate. I also have ascertained that for protein, I probably need to stay somewhere between 80 to 100 grams, depending on uh, my exercise that day. Exercise days, when I lift, I obviously eat a little more protein and can get away with that and still be in ketosis. On non-exercise days, I need to stay closer to that 80. So that translates to what? About six ounces of meat, maybe? Right. And so... And I'm cool with that. I'm able to eat one to two meals and spontaneously intermittent fast. And you know, you bring up the the other F word. Yeah, <laughs> fasting is the other F word, and people kind of go crazy on you. And the and I used to be one of those people. I used to rail against this whole IF movement. But then when I did nutritional ketosis, and this just started happening spontaneously, I'm like, uh, oh yeah, I haven't eaten in 24 hours. I guess I should eat something. It was pretty amazing because you think about where I came from, Mark, and drinking 16 cans of Coca-Cola a day and whole boxes of Little Debbie snack cakes and big plates of pasta. I was, like, eating all the time when I was a 400-pounder. Right. And And, and, and by the way, your brain was probably requiring that you eat all the
2: time. That's right. Because of the, the metabolic conditioning that you had the fuel partitioning, as it were, leading mostly yeah. to uh, a desire to consume glucose to fuel the
1: brain and, and whatever else was going on. Absolutely. Fat adapted was not even in the vernacular at that point in my life. <laughs> right. So you bring up the whole point about protein. And I think that's one of the mistakes
2: people make uh, yes. in, in going low carb and attempting to uh, engage in some form of ketogenesis. Uh, yep. talk, talk a little bit about the protein aspect.
1: You know why they do that? They do that because the media has been extremely effective at telling us that a low-carb diet is a high-protein diet. But even Dr. Atkins would have told you it's never a high-protein diet. It's a high-fat diet. And so I think subliminally some of these people that start a low-carb diet, they think, oh, chicken breast and broccoli, with with uh you know spray margarine on it, okay, oh, right. that's pretty darn low carb. Right, that is low carb, but it's not necessarily ketogenic. What's missing there in people's minds they don't realize is there's this long G word we talk about in uh, keto clarity called gluconeogenesis. And if you're eating way too much protein, which most low carbers that stall and have issues are. You're getting way too much glucose from the protein you consume. And, and Mark, that blows people's minds. They don't realize that the body is transferring and and making some of that protein into glucose through the liver. Uh, So their blood sugar starts to spike. They lose their ketones, and they wonder, what in the world am I doing wrong? I'm eating next to no carbs, and yet I'm getting these blood sugar spikes. I'm losing my ketones. I'm not losing weight. What's going on? It's the protein stupid <laughs>
0: <laughs> right
2: it's
1: the stupid protein, stupid um, yeah.
2: has dr. Westman uh, offered up uh, an explanation of why a body that was quite comfortable depending on ketones and had built the metabolic machinery to build them would be so
1: uh, readily willing to create more glucose from the protein, not specifically has he addressed that that i've that I've heard him address that. I can tell you that, you know, once you become uh, keto adapted, your body kind of will will tell you to stop eating. And of course, if you're becoming keto adapted, you're not eating the amount of protein that would make you, right. uh, you know, go into gluconeogenesis. That's kind of what you're trying to shut off is what is that threshold level for protein that will keep me ketotic without making that glucose uh, mechanism kick in. Right. One of the other
2: aspects of a ketogenic diet is um, it is labeled as anorectic. And um, I always found that, you know, a little bit of an interesting, titillating word in the context of diet because obviously there, there are these negative connotations. But yeah, but it basically decreases your appetite. And All a right. lot of people think, well, hey, wait, that's terrible. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. <laughs> and what I've found, and, and even though, I'm more of a cyclic ketogenic guy and I spend more time out of ketosis than I do in. I feel personally that I've built enough of the metabolic machinery that I can, that I can drift in and out quite easily and comfortably depending on literally what, you know, what meals are put in front of me. But one of the long-term effects of that is that I don't run my life from meal to meal. And you, you alluded to that uh, briefly a little while ago when you said you know there's these days when you wake up and you go, oh, wait a minute. I forgot to eat. And yeah. uh, that's, that, to me, is not just not a bad thing. That is a good thing, and that is very freeing to be able to, to know that you have access to fuel on your body. And Jimmy, you still have some access to, to fat, and right. I have access to fat. And we are never going to tap in, fully tap into that stored body fat. And again, it's such an empowering, freeing thing to understand that once you've built that metabolic machinery, you can choose to intermittently fast. You can literally forget to eat a meal and have everything be okay and retain your lean muscle mass.
1: Well, and think about this, Mark. There are people out there right now who are going to their doctors and they're saying, look, I need something to control my appetite. And these doctors are putting some of the most powerful appetite suppressants on these patients. And guess what? The most powerful appetite suppressant, guess what, is ketosis. And so, yeah, it's definitely not a negative thing that people are not hungry. I've never found that to be anything but absurd to say, well, that's a bad thing. You know, not being hungry to me is a sign of great metabolic health.
2: That's a that's a good way to put it. It's a it's a good thing, not a bad thing, and it's a sign of metabolic health. And I, I sort of cringe when I hear the carb centric community suggest that um, going without carbs is is dangerous for your health. That it's uh, yeah. you know the brain will w- won't run on it. That you'll uh, you know you'll lose your muscle mass. Uh, fat burns in a carbohydrate flame. All of these bizarre <laughs> old things. And I, I read in your book you have uh, fat burns in a fat flame. Yeah. So uh, eating fat helps stoke the flame of burning stored body fat. I like that. One of the things that I also read in your book was the idea, and I've seen this before, and while I I sort of know it uh, intellectually, it's a tough thing for me to grok intuitively. Maybe you can expand on that. People who have had their gallbladder removed can typically embark on a ketogenic diet and a high-fat diet without issues. Right. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. My wife, Christine, actually, uh, well, Christine, 2008, you had your gallbladder taken out. Oh, 2006. Okay. So yeah, that first year after she had it taken out, uh, it was tough. Uh, she was having a tough time adding back in the more fat because, uh, we all know the gallbladder helps with that fat metabolism. So, but about a year in Mark, she started up in the fat more and more and more. And now the girl eats more fat than I do. (laughs) (laughs) And so she's able to do that very easily and she has no gallbladder. So I think it's one of those things that over time you can build back up an ability to eat a lot of fat. Just don't try it right away when you get it taken out.
2: Right. It's just ease into it and build that
1: adaptation. So what do you think is the mechanism for that? You know, honestly, I have no idea because you would think that you would need that in order to to be able to eat the more fat. But I'm telling you, this girl puts down bacon like I've never seen anybody put down bacon.
2: <laughs> well, I mean that – but that's that's, that's great because I've uh, – one of the things that I've noticed in my coming in contact with hundreds of thousands of people is the alarming number of people that have had gallbladder surgery. It's it's like um, – yeah. it's bizarre to me that, that that number of people have had issues. And on the other hand, if you think about what happens with the gallbladder and the fact that it's producing this bile which is intended to emulsify – uh, the fats that you consume, and then you've embarked on a vegetarian or a high-carb eating strategy that that is, by uh, its very nature, a low-fat eating strategy. And all of a mm-hmm. sudden, you have no reason to be releasing this bile from the from the gallbladder anymore. You can see how it would get blocked up and backed up, and and yeah. perhaps infected. Once again, back to this uh, this interesting notion that. Uh, that you know, we we were told all through the 70s and 80s that you must eat a a low fat diet, and uh,
1: it's coming back to uh, bite a lot of people in the butt. How's that working for you, as Doctor Pills? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And uh, I would even argue, Mark, that we are a fat deprived culture. Yeah. That this is one of the things I'm really going to harp on because. I honestly believe most of kind of the health issues that we're dealing with, most of especially like psychotic issues, you know, all these school shootings that happen and all these people that go crazed. I just wonder how many of them are fat deprived and had they consumed the right amounts of real food based saturated fats would their brains have made them do all these horrible things. I don't know.
2: Well, it's it's certainly an interesting uh, question to ask because uh, we know that the brain is largely composed of fat. And we also know that young children depend so much on uh, healthy fats for the development of their brain. Right. Um,
1: Definitely uh, uh, something to, to ponder for sure. So do you count calories these days? You know, I have not counted calories in years, Mark, and especially when I started nutritional ketosis and purposely doing that to get into a ketotic state, I don't. I listen to my hunger is what I do. And so... If I'm having a meal, I don't really care how many calories are in it because I know that if I've dialed in my, my carbohydrate tolerance and my protein threshold and I'm eating fat to satiety and I'm able to be uh, satiated with that for hours on end, sometimes upward of 24 to 36 hours on end, then who cares what the calorie intake is? And, of course, the argument has been put out there, well, the only reason low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diets work is you eat less calories. And this is a bad thing. Yeah, exa- no, ex- no, exactly. That's that just
2: blows my mind. Yeah. Um, no, I, I've, I've said for a while that uh, my goal is to eat as few calories as possible and maintain my muscle mass. Yeah, uh, because I, f- I find that that's probably the ideal thing. And I, I, I'm i flabbergasted by people who say, oh, no, 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 you should try to eat as much as possible and not gain weight. That's really the ideal situation. I I fear that where that comes from is this overwhelming desire to uh, satisfy a hunger that people have that drives them literally from meal to meal. Like, okay, I just finished lunch. What are we having for dinner? I just finished dinner. What what are we going to have before I go to bed? And I'm more of the – it goes back to the anorectic aspect of – this sort of a diet which is it it really does mitigate appetite and it's to the point where if you eat to satiety and you right. know that there's going to be some food somewhere if you need it then it's easy enough to push the plate away if you think about it i i probably eat 30% fewer calories now to maintain the same mass and do the same work that i did when i was a, a you know a sort of a carb centric athlete Mm -hmm. fewer calories. If everybody in this country ate 30% fewer calories, not only would we be trending more toward sort of an ideal body composition, but we could probably feed the rest of the world. And if they were keto-adapted, they could easily do that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, So when you decide to become keto-adapted, fat-adapted and keto-adapted, and you undergo this thing, you you hear the original Atkins stories of the low-carb flu, you hear about the... You know, the the moodiness, the lightheadedness, the wanting to grab somebody by the lapels and rip their head off if they don't feed you the next meal. Um, so do you have a strategy for people to to
1: enter into
2: ketosis that is, shall we say, uh, the least painful?
1: Yeah, I I think for people that start having some of those symptoms, don't neglect the role of salt in your diet. We've also, in addition to becoming saturated fat phobic, we've also become salt phobic. And and part of that is because we've heard that message over and over and over again. So one of the things that happens early on uh, on any diet, but especially a ketogenic diet, is you lose a lot of salt. So add back in the salt. I know Volek and Finney uh, often talk about adding in like bouillon, but yeah, I mean you don't even have to do that. You could do bone broth with lots of salt in it, and that does just the same thing. Uh, the point is you don 't have to suffer going through this. I wish I had known about this when I started way back in two thousand and four that the salt was a big thing. The other thing there, Mark, is people are probably still not eating enough fat because if you have some of those symptoms you 're probably not eating enough and definitely not enough fat so there 's really no such thing in my mind if you 're listening to your satiety signals of eating too much fat. As long as you've dialed in the uh, the protein and the carbs to where they need to be for you personally, eat fat to satiety, and that's probably more fat than you ever thought you would ever eat. No, that's a good point because
2: if if you are dialing back the protein and the carbs, it becomes almost uncomfortable to overeat the fat. Right. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to um, go back and um, and t- and talk about measuring ketones. Uh, and mm-hmm. you and I had this conversation probably four or five years ago, uh, even before this concept for the book came up, and that was based around uh, urinary ketones versus blood ketones. And I sort of suggested that if you are new to ketosis, if you're a, a newbie, and let's say you've just gone on a fast or something and you're trying to get into ketosis, that, yep. the, that the ketones will show up in the urine that's right. um, pretty substantially but that some people who become good at getting into ketosis or, or at ketogenesis which is the generation of, of ketones and let's like we sort of maybe should clear up this, this terminology right now ketosis is the excess of ketones and right. ketogenesis is the creation of ketones so you can be good at ketogenesis and then if, you be, if you've built that metabolic machinery to burn them effectively it may be that you don't spill any or that many out in your urine or in the sweat or the breath that you're, that they're, but they certainly are circulating in the blood and, and able for you to use them as the wonderful fuels that they are. So I guess where I'm going with that is that some people who are really good at getting into ketosis, and then they measure their urinary strips
1: and they say, wait a minute, there's, there's no change. (laughs) Um, they may be missing the point. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, and we address that head on in keto clarity, um, because early on, yeah, if you're just starting out, The urine strips are probably going to validate a lot of your choices, uh, and it's going to let you know early on, yes, you are on the right track. But long term, the longer you do it and the more once you become keto adapted, something interesting happens to some people, not all people. Some people still spill acetoacetate, which is the ketone body in the urine. They still spill that onto the test strip, but not everybody. So what's going on there? Acetoacetate gets uh, converted into beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the primary ketone body in the blood, and it's the blood one that you want to care about. So, if you're testing with the keto sticks, and I get the emails all the time—I'm sure you do sometimes too, Mark—people like, "Oh my gosh, I'm doing everything right, and yet the keto sticks are are not turning anything." And I'm going, "Why are you still measuring with urine?" Once you become keto-adapted, you really need to shift over to better ways to measure. And currently, blood is kind of the gold standard for measuring, but there is emerging technology with acetone in the breath, which is the other ketone body correlating very well with beta-hydroxybutyrate. There's a few products on the market. Uh, There's one on the market right now called Ketonics, which we talk about in the book, but there's plenty of others that are on the way. I, I see by 2016, Mark, on store shelves, people will be able to buy a breath ketone meter to see how well they're doing in fat burning. Wow, and an accurate one that that correlates with blood ketones, huh? Right. Yeah. Wow. And I tested the Ketonics; it's accurate about seventy-five to eighty percent of the time, which is pretty darn good. I would like a little better accuracy, but for right now, it's the best one that they have on the market.
2: Right. And when you say seventy-five to eighty percent accuracy, um, so that you you can measure it according to your own um, standards over time, not against somebody else's. So you you, you it's relative to your own. Uh, right. past performance is that sort of what you're getting yeah
1: at? I measured uh, urine blood and the breath all at the same time for about nine months in a row every single day and yeah so sometimes I'd have an anomaly reading where I'd have you know a 2.7 on the blood ketone but then it would show that I had next to nothing ketones on the breath right so uh, but then like I said most of the time it was pretty spot on. Well, that's interesting. I'll, I'll be interested in getting one of those. I'm not a big uh, blood pricking. Well, and the blood is extremely expensive. I mean, here in America, those strips can cost you upwards of like 3 to $5 a piece. That, unless you're like Mark I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> unless you're rich, you can't really afford those. Um, and so the Katonix, for example, is a USB device that you just plug into a, a USB outlet and you can blow into it thousands upon thousands of times for about a hundred bucks. So it's really a cost effective. It's even cheaper than the, than the urine ketones, which aren't going to give you much information.
2: Hey, Jimmy, what are you doing for exercise
1: these days? You sprinting? Oh, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's an inside joke. You guys, You, you call me all the time. You sprinting? That's the first thing I was about. You know, it's your fault. And I, and I give you credit for this actually quite often. It's your fault that I have turned to a lot of play activities for exercise. I used to be one of those people. Oh, I guess you need to go to the gym and walk on the treadmill. No, I don't think I've walked on a treadmill in forever now. So no, playing the Frisbee golf definitely is is a fun activity. You do a lot of bending and walking. And in fact, I just got back this summer. I did 26, 18 hole course 26 times with Tom Naughton. So that's 26 miles we walked. Wow. And of course, bending over and throwing and what, what, what'd you do, the Pro
2: Circuit or what what was that?
1: <laughs> so Tom lives in Franklin, Tennessee, and he has a farm there. And so he has an 18-hole course right there on his farm. He's got to invite the great Mark Sisson sometime to come play. But it was a lot of fun. And yeah, I mean I had blisters on the bottom of my feet by the end of the week. But Doing that kind of activity is fun. I do love doing sprints. I've got uh, stop signs out in front of my house here, so I have a stop sign to stop sign where I can sprint from one to the other, and then walk back, and then sprint one to the other, and walk back, and do that about you know seven or eight times, and I'm winded. That's what, um, that's what
2: you need to do. That's that's I, I like, know.
1: I like what I'm hearing, Jimmy. That's you you got me on it, man. And then and then I also like to do some some weightlifting. I I never enjoyed weightlifting at all. My brother Kevin did that when he played football in high school. I was I was in the band in high school. I was the fat kid in the band. So uh, now I like to lift and um, I don't do it you know, real fast and do all the grunting and all the stuff that the other guys in the gym do. But I'll lift heavy things and drop them and do that every few days. And the muscle uh, speaks for itself. Good. I mean, so you're obviously maintaining muscle mass. You're building a little muscle mass? I am. And uh, during my experiment, I was able to uh, show you can be in a ketogenic state. You can cut down on the amount of protein and carbohydrates you consume and still build muscle and burn fat at the same time that's another one of those memes that gets out there there's no way you could possibly shed fat and build muscle at the same time uh oh yeah you can
2: no that's awesome that's that's probably one of the greatest things that uh, speaks on behalf of ketosis and ketogenesis i love it uh build muscle and burn fat at the same time hey it sounds like an infomercial almost (laughs) hey wait
1: there's more oh yeah
2: exactly uh, Jimmy, where can uh, my listeners uh, find out more about Keto Clarity and your podcasts?
1: So, we've uh, set up a website for Keto Clarity, the book, uh, ketoclarity.com, where we'll have uh, interviews like this one listed there. Uh, I'm doing a lot of speaking events. I'm actually uh, very privileged to be able to go on an international tour. I'm going to go to New Zealand, I'm going to do a three week tour through Australia in November. And then February next year, going to South Africa. So we're real excited about taking the ketogenic message worldwide, but ketoclarity.com is that website. And then the Live Levita Low Carb Show, where uh, I guess I'm the podcast king, uh, is at the com.
2: Awesome. Well, listen, Jimmy, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, as always, and uh, having you enlighten our, our crowd on ketosis, ketogenesis, and all the wonderful benefits that come from it. So uh, thanks for
0: joining us, and I'm going to hand it back over to Brad right now. That was Jimmy Moore and Mark Sisson talking about ketones. Live in Levita Keto. Live in (laughs) Levito Keto. New website. I just made it up. If you're still listening. That was great, Jimmy. Thanks. Very fascinating. Um, I know it was moving kind of quickly, so we will have the transcript printed on blog.primalblueprint.com. When we get into the science, you can read a little more carefully or just re-listen to this wonderful podcast, especially for those of you considering delving into the ketone scene. It's all here in one bright purple book cover. So, look for it on the bookshelves or on Amazon, Keto Clarity, or visit the website. Thanks, Jimmy Moore. And thanks, listeners, to listen to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. Until next time, I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Hey, podcasts are great, but how about a life-changing weekend at PrimalCon? Coming up is the historic occasion of our fifth annual event in Oxnard that's on the beach in Southern California at the amazing Embassy Suites Mandalay Beach Resort. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles, one of the best-kept secrets in Southern California, this resort right on the sands of the beautiful beach town of Oxnard. And we have an amazing park there, an expanse of grass and all kinds of fun stuff to on so we'll be spending a fun weekend outdoors with an awesome slate of presenters talking and presenting on all manner of physical activity diet health nutrition nutrition Posture and movement mechanics, all kinds of topics covered. So, you'll get a great education from the world's leading experts, but we'll also have a ton of fun and excitement. Of course, we're going to play the annual Survivor Team Challenge, just like you see on TV, except this one is more fun, more challenging. It includes brain teasers and good team strategy challenges. We're also going to have, of course, the world famous Primal Con Ocean Plunge slash Jacuzzi Sprint. So, you're going to run into the pretty cold ocean, guaranteed. And then about a two-minute sprint where we take over the entire jacuzzi at the Mandalay Beach Resort. People look at us like we're crazy, but it's tons of fun. And then we're going to dine on the all-time fabulous PrimalCon food, which you can see all kinds of pictures of on the website. So visit PrimalBlueprint.com, look for the PrimalCon link. You can see pictures and videos chronicling the wonderful times we've had in Oxnard over the past four years. And we certainly hope you can join us for the fifth annual PrimalCon Oxnard. September 25th through 28th, 2014.